do not hold on to your marriage with unbelieving women. Now here it is black and white that just in case some women who have been conquered in war, just in case some women have not converted to Islam and you are either with them or in love with them or in company of them or you are holding them as hostage, do not marry them. You see, under the Islamic law, the question of falling in love the question of treating the other person as an equal free to observe his or her religion, which is different from Islam, does not arise. I am very glad to be in Sangam Talks. It's always a pleasure to be here. And we have today a very important subject, uh, especially on what is called a Valentine's Day, a day of love. It seems to be a very new festival. I don't know if it is a festival or if it is a, a commercial undertaking because people want to sell all kinds of things in the name of love. I have never heard any serious talk about what is love or what is man-woman relationship in the context of Valentine's Day. So it is very good that today we are talking about relationship between Hindu and Muslim in terms of marriage. Now, we have this as a raging controversy in India, whether a relationship of marriage between a Muslim and a Hindu is for the sake of conversion to Islam? Is it because Muslims want expansion of Islam into the Hindu fold or in, so to speak into the Hindu uh, demography? Or is it because Muslims are really in love with Hindu women and vice versa, that uh, uh, Hindu women fall in love with Muslim men or that uh, the relationship can be either way. So most people, especially the Anglophonic class of India, is very happy in uh, propagating the theory that everybody has the right to love, everybody who is an adult has the right to uh, form a, not only a love relationship, but a marital relationship, irrespective of religion, irrespective of caste, and the Indian constitution uh, lays no such bar. Uh, it is the right of the individual to practice the religion, uh, to profess the religion, to propagate the religion as one feels like. So people talk of, of the Article 25 in this context and they bring in the theory of freedom. Now, what I have to say today is simply this, that while freedom is allowed, not only in the constitution, 
it is also allowed in life. In India, it has always been allowed. And it has been allowed to the humblest and the richest and the most powerful alike. Particularly, the spiritual freedom has been allowed that way. But all freedom is bound by certain social norms. And we cannot make a total fetish out of freedom because freedom is not dependent upon just individual will. Freedom is something which, if it concerns another human being, or let alone human being, if it concerns another living creature or even an inanimate creature like a stone or rock, bird or environment, then there is a relationship of the individual to the other. And one has to see that is the freedom only for the sake of a personal desire, for the sake of a passion, for the sake of an idea of an individual, or for the sake of the belief of the community of the individual? Or is it something which is mutually respectful? Or is it something that does not transgress the freedom of somebody else? Now, this is very important. And uh, this is something that has to be seen in the context of interfaith marriage or in the context of a Muslim marrying a Hindu or let us say uh, a Hindu marrying a Muslim, whatever way you look at it, man marrying a Muslim, man marrying a Hindu uh, woman or a um, Hindu man marrying a Muslim woman. Now, we have today a whole discourse which is coming out of the West and uh, we see in several newspapers that recently in India laws are being made which restrict the freedom of Hindu woman, women, uh, which as a matter of fact, uh, they consider and they talk about this in terms of restraining the sexuality of Hindu women. You know, this is how they phrase the whole thing, that the Brahminical class of India and the present-day political party is making laws which is restricting the sexuality of Hindu women. In other words, which is forbidding them to marry Muslim men or creating obstacles in their way of marrying Muslim men. See, see, there is a whole discourse which is going on, and you can see it in several newspapers, the leftist newspapers and uh, magazines uh, in India and outside India. So one can see that there is already a bias in this whole discourse. And it is, to my mind, not a very serious discourse because you are seeking a solution only in terms of freedom of sexuality, freedom of sexual freedom and passion, whether of men or of women. Now, marriage is something much more than that. Marriage 
is a social responsibility. It is a social relationship. So it has to be seen in the context of how a couple gets located within a society. And I'm going to talk today more about Indian society rather than any other society. Because such problems in many ways do not arise in most European societies or in American society, the North American uh, continent, United States of America, for the very simple reason that in North America, there is only one single marriage law. Anybody uh, who marries there, whether he is a Christian, a Christian of any denomination, or a Jew, or a Muslim, or a Hindu, whosoever marries there would be governed by the same laws, and there is just one law. In India, on the contrary, things are different because we have here something called the personal law. This is something which came into existence in the 19th century in the British time. Before the British time in India, it was a different situation. There was Sharia law for Muslims. But Sharia law for Muslims operated not just for marriage. It operated for almost everything. It operated for theft. It operated for adultery. It operated for uh, lying. It operated for rebelling against the state, etc., etc. So Muslims were dealt with by the Islamic state or even by the Hindu state in terms of Sharia law. For everything. But with the British rule, a personal law was made, which was applicable only for marriage and inheritance. Now it is here that the problem arises, because you have separate personal law for Hindus, separate personal law for Muslims, separate for Christians, and inheriting that uh, in the 50s, uh, we made similar laws so that today we are governed by a Muslim personal law, a Hindu personal law, a Christian personal law. And uh, uh, most people, Sikhs, Jains, etc., they are governed by the Hindu law according to the Constitution. So it is here in India that we have to examine this question of love jihad because it is in India that the question becomes more relevant because under the Muslim law as it stands today in India there can be no marriage between a Hindu and a Muslim. It has to be between two Muslims. Under a uh, Hindu law, it has to be between two Hindus. Under the Christian law, it has to be between two Christians. But India also made what was called the Special Marriage Act, in which a Hindu can marry a Muslim. And then 
the property rights and the rights of inheritance are different. So India has a special marriage act in which there is no compulsion for the two partners to be of the same religion. Now, having given you this background, let me come to the whole question of what is now being discussed as love jihad. That is, is a marriage between a Muslim and a Hindu today for the sake of love or it is something for the sake of expanding Islam, that is bringing Hindu women into Islam. Now, I would first of all talk about the Sharia law. The Sharia law, not just in terms of as it stands today, uh, as practiced in the Islamic countries, but Sharia law as it stands in the minds of the people, particularly the Muslims of India. Although it may not be operating in every field of uh, criminal law or social justice, it is certainly there as a force of the community. And if you look at that, then let us just see what does the Holy Quran say about uh, marriage and what does the Quran talk about marriage for a Muslim. Now, the traditionally numbered second surah, Al-Baqarah, that is the cow. It says very clearly, you shall not wed pagan women unless they embrace the faith. A believing slave girl is better than an idolateress, although she may please you. Nor shall you wed idolaters unless they embrace the faith. A believing slave is better than an idolater although she may please you. So now it's not me repeating it, but then it is the ayat of Quran which is repeating it. A believing slave girl is better than an idolater, although he may please you. These call you to hellfire, but Allah calls you by his will to paradise and to forgiveness. He may explain his revelations to mankind so that they may take heed. In other words, at the threat of hellfire, now it's important to understand, at the threat of hellfire, it is said that it is the command of Allah that you shall marry only a Muslim. So a Muslim woman can marry only a Muslim man. And a Muslim man can marry only a Muslim woman. You shall not wed pagan women. So it's very clear. There can be, according to Islam, no marriage. So, if a good citizen of India 
who is a Muslim, marries a Hindu girl under the Special Marriage Act. Under the Special Marriage Act, then he is following the Indian Constitution, but he is not following the Holy Quran. Now, this is in black and white. There is no doubt about it. Either the man has to say that, look, I am being liberal to the point of not paying heed to this particular ayat. And I am liberal enough and I respect the religion of the woman I am loving to the point that I shall not ask her to convert and hence I shall marry her under the Special Marriage Act and therefore I am duly wedded. I have done an act under the Indian Constitution and I have also not paid heed to the Holy Quran. Or there is no choice before me according to my religion, there is no choice but that I have to convert the lady whom I am in love with. Jiske liye mein chan tare tod kar la sakta hoon. Usko mein bhai convert to karna hi padega mujhe shadi karne se pehle. Chukhi mere liye majid, Quran majid ka ye adesh hai. Right? You see, we have to look at this thing. And I see here no point in making a discussion about freedom. Either you say that I have the freedom not to pay heed to the religious injunction as it is given to me. And therefore, I am marrying. I am respecting the swadharma of the other. So a Muslim woman can say that, yes, I am a Muslim, I'll marry a Hindu, and I'll not convert her. But in that case, I am not following the Quran. Now, if this is very clear, then how can you give all these arguments which are fantastic arguments. For instance, uh, so many of you may have seen that film called Mughal Azam. And what is shown in Mughal Azam? That Akbar the Great has married a Hindu lady who is called Jodhabai in that uh, film. And Jodhabai remains a Hindu. She does not convert. Her name continues to be Jodhabai and she is also a worshipper of Krishna and she celebrates Janmashtami and that day Akbar the Great also goes and he participates in the ritual. So Akbar Johan Zilla Elahi wo bhi Bhagawan Krishna ko jhula jhula rahe hain. Ye humne Mughle Azam mein dekha. अब देखिए ऐसी संभावना तो हो नहीं सकती। It is not something which was 
likely to have happened at all long time back under Islamic rule, under a king who was also called a Ghazi. Akbar declared himself to be a Ghazi and a Ghazi is one who believes in the conquest of Islam and converting the unbelievers. Now, I am giving you all this because in India we have discovered, uh, we have uh, uh, kind of uh, propagated this kind of uh, discourse of freedom in which we are not really seeing the historical truth and we are also not seeing what is the injunction. We are presuming that everybody is liberal in India. Every young man who falls in love with somebody of a different religion is really free of all the religious persuasions that have happened to him or her or which are part of her or his religious uh, compulsion, family pressure, etc. and etc. Now, if you look at this whole thing, then it is very clear that a person who falls in love with a, a Muslim who falls in love with a Hindu girl can only marry her under the Special Marriage Act. And if that is not done, then there has been some kind of a conversion. Now, I'm not going to talk about some famous cases, etc., because people know enough about it. I'm only going to talk about what is the prevailing condition under law. There is no room for you to say that I am marrying for love and yet I am compelled to convert because my parents have asked uh, me to just have some kind of a conversion ceremony so that they are satisfied, but that the woman is not actually converted, that she is free to follow her religion. Now, you cannot go on telling all these kinds of stories. You have to be very clear. At this context, I would also like to quote another portion of the Quran. Now that also makes it very clear that you cannot marry somebody who is not a convert to Islam. Now this is a rather long chap uh, a passage which I am going to read out. Because this was written in the context of the historical situation when wars were fought and when non-Muslim tribes were conquered by Muslims and people were converted and women were brought into marriage and uh, certain laws were put into the Holy Quran to govern that relationship. Now, this is here. Believers, when believing women seek refuge with you, 
test them. That is, he, they are talking about those women who have been conquered in war, who belong to either the Jewish or any other tribe, and then have converted under force or persuasion, whatever. And they say that they have become Muslims. So you have to test them, even if they say that they have become Muslim. Believers, when believing women seek refuge with you, test them. Allah best knows their faith. In other words, it's not so easy for you to know at face value whether they are really converted to Islam or they are pretending. If you find them true believers, do not return them to the infidels. So in case you find that they have really had a change of heart, then don't give it back to their husbands. They are not lawful to the infidels. Not are the infidels lawful to them. But hand back to the unbeliever the dowries they gave them. So what you can do is to give back the dowries that these women had in marriage. So you see these were all married women. These were all married women and they were conquered in war, they were converted and they have been tested and now they are being handed, now their dowries are being handed back to them, to the, their erstwhile husbands. Nor is it an offense for you to marry such women provided you give them their dowries. So you marry them and then you give them their meher. Because under the Islamic law, you have to first promise or give meher to a woman and then the ceremony of marriage takes place. Do not hold on to your marriage with unbelieving women. Now here it is black and white that just in case some women who have been conquered in war, just in case some women have not converted to Islam and you are either with them or in love with them or in company of them or you are holding them as hostage, do not marry them. Demand the dowries you have given them and let the infidels do the same. Such is the law which Allah lays down among you. Allah is wise and all-knowing. So it's very clear that marriage can take place only between two Muslims and a woman has to be tested even if she has converted. So, you see, under the Islamic law, the question of falling in love the question of treating the other person as an equal free to observe his or her religion, which is different from Islam, does not arise. I repeat, under Islamic law, there is none. 
Now, a good Muslim, as I said earlier, has either to follow Quran-e-Majid, the Holy Quran, or if he wants to be secular, or if she wants to be secular, that is Tarakki Yafta Muslim, a progressive Muslim, then he or she has to say that she is not following this particular injunction of the Quran. So I would like to ask my liberal friends, my leftist friends, my uh, European and American sociologists and uh, professors of Hinduism, if there is room for love under the Islamic law. And if there is room for love, then I would like them to show me some sort of a some sort of a uh, ayat, some sort of an injunction in the Holy Quran. And if it is not there, then perhaps it is not wrong to presume that the very question of love does not arise. The relationship of love between a Muslim and a non-Muslim does not arise unless you have given up the prescribed injunction. So, in that case, what is love jihad? Love jihad, then the word love is love of dawa, love of conversion, love of expanding the territory of Islam. Because either they can be love or they can be jihad. The two simply cannot go together. And so when people say there is love jihad, then they are really talking about jihad, which is coming under some sort of a, some sort of a garb of love. So I have, I will simply repeat that if there is going to be a love marriage, truly a love marriage between uh, a Muslim and a non-Muslim, then in India, it has to be under Special Marriage Act. Now, remember that some of these laws which have been enacted by Uttar Pradesh and are being in the process of being enacted in Madhya Pradesh, I'm not sure if it has been done, but it's being promised. They are only talking about preventing deceit. They are talking about a Muslim deceiving a Hindu woman by pretending to be a Hindu. They are not talking about anything else. They are not asking the very hard core question which I am putting before you today. That is why I had sent messages 
to both the chief ministers, to Yogi Adityanath and to the chief minister of Madhya Pradesh to say that under this law, it should be compulsory that a marriage between a Muslim and a Hindu takes place only under Special Marriage Act. Because once it is under Special Marriage Act, it is very clear that religious compulsion is not operating. I would go to the extent of saying that it should be under Special Marriage Act and it should continue to be so even if at some later stage a partner wants to convert to Islam because he or she happens to like it as one has gone into an Islamic family. The marriage should continue to be under section, under Special Marriage Act because there is a greater freedom, particularly for women. There is a much greater freedom in terms of divorce laws and there is a much greater freedom in terms of property inheritance. And this is something we have to simply think about. Now the other question. What about the traditional Hindu attitude to marriage? I have given you with quotations from the Quran. I have given you the Islamic view, the Islamic compulsion. Was there any such compulsion in the Hindu tradition? Remember, there is a compulsion today under the uh, Hindu Marriage Act, which has been, which was first formulated by the British and uh, which was uh, kind of regurgitated or just uh, reshaped uh, by our uh, great uh, leaders in the 50s. But this is a present situation. I want to ask the question, what about something that prevailed, let's say, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or even five or six hundred years ago? What does the Hindu marriage ceremony say. Now the Hindu marriage ceremony is pretty much the same as it was in ancient times. All the, uh, all the 11 plus 5 steps, something like 17 or 18 steps, right from Padatranam, that is when the groom comes, takes off his shoes and enters the sacred space, right from there, that ritual till the end, there are many steps, there are many vows taken, there are many annunciations made. Is there an annunciation which talks about religious conviction, philosophical faith, relationship of the individual to God, the kind of sadhana or bhakti the person is doing. Is there any mention of it in the Hindu marriage ritual? And here I am talking about the Hindu marriage ritual as the Indian marriage ritual, something which is done by the Sikhs and the, um, by the Jains and by Bauddhas and others. 
you will find that there is none. As a matter of fact, all the enunciations that are made, and I don't have the time to read out the mantras to you or to translate them, they only say, with a man and woman only says that, look, my heart should reunite with your heart. That I am going to undertake this union in order to perform these and these things with you. The seven vows of the Saptapadi is that, look, I shall fulfill my duties in marriage in this and this and this manner. And you shall do it in this and this and manner. These are your obligations as a husband. And these will be my obligations and duties as a wife. That we are both going to look at the pole star, the Dhruva, in order to be inspired to keep our marriage a permanent one. So, and we have the Agni here the fire here as a witness to the vows that we are taking. Now, there is no question here that I shall worship this God or that God. Now, it is true that when you perform this ritual, then along with Agni, you also place maybe the image of the God of the family. But the God of the family is only witness to your vows. So, if, let's say, the man is a Shaiv, follower of Shiva, he at no point says that you, my wife, or you, the lady who is going to be my wife, shall also follow the Shaiv Dharma. I mean, there is no such connotation or implication at all. And it is very clear from the whole Paddhati that marriages have always been taking place between people of very different sampradayas or today what is called religion in India. So Sikhs have been marrying Hindus and Hindus have been marrying Jains and Jains have been marrying uh, Veer Shaivas or other Shaivas. So the question as to what Devata, I don't like to use the word God, but what Devata, what Bhagwan you worship, no question is asked about that. And although Agni is or your God may be witness to the vows that you have undertaken, the social contract that you have undertaken, the social contract I'm, I'm sorry, I should not have used the word contract. It's not a contract because contracts can be broken and set aside. They are not sacred. Let us say a sacrament that you have entered into. You do not put the restriction of what is going to be your faith. What is going to be your belief regarding ultimate matters. Now, this is the Hindu situation. This was the Hindu situation. But unfortunately, under uh, colonial law, which we are following, uh, 
we have now made that under the Hindu personal law, only a Hindu can marry a Hindu. So I think that there is, it is time for us to look at these personal laws in a different way. It's time for us to look at the tradition as it has been. I have made it clear that whenever there is a marriage between a Muslim and a non-Muslim, then the non-Muslim has to convert sooner or later. It happens at times people say that, okay, I'm not converting. And there could be cases, and there could be cases of well-known personalities from the film world or elsewhere, where the woman was not asked to convert, and she continued to be a Hindu. But the children are always made to follow Islam. You see, it is not a case where the children are given the freedom to choose their religion and declare their faith when they become adult. Because they are given the names which signify their Islamic faith and that settles the question. So what is practiced here is what may be called and what has been called by a friend of mine, Dilip Amin, as skip jihad, a skip generation. That is, you skip the person who is not willing to convert, but then the children, they continue to be in the Islamic line. Now, with this kind of a deep insistence that uh, a marital relationship has to be within the Islamic faith, one gets very suspicious when people say that I am marrying a non-Muslim woman for love. And people are justified in asking questions. As I have said, there is only one proof that you can provide that you are marrying only for love. And that proof is that marry under special marriage act. If you do it, and I would say that that should be the law in India, that is freedom. I would urge it to all my liberal friends, to all my Marxist friends, to all my westernized friends, that if you really believe that Muslims can marry only for love, then you should ask Muslims to perform a marriage in India under the Special Marriage Act, because there you give freedom not just through assurances, but under law. I have a cousin who married a Catholic girl and uh, they wanted a traditional wedding and either of them did not want to change their religion. But apart from 
court wedding there is i think there is no provision in india for them to either marry in a church or uh, otherwise without uh, without him getting baptized so it's probably not just islamic this thing like you said about special marriages act they said we will get it registered but right now we want a traditional wedding with family and friends what do we do well <laughs> i would say that uh, in that case they should do a hindu marriage hindu ritual because the hindu ritual only asks for uniting the hearts the hindu ritual only asks for declaring certain duties to each other it does not ask you to convert the i'm i'm saying traditional hindu ritual that's my answer I yeah mean, actually they did that they did a hindu ritual in a resort <laughs> so it was a neutral ground for both the families to come in but they had a sapati i would be a stickler here and i would say i mean i respect they are doing a christian marriage for the sake of the family and to you know for celebration and all that uh, a disciple of mine uh, who married a chinese and this is a white christian girl Uh, she did a chinese marriage she did a hindu marriage she did a buddhist marriage so she did three rituals but then this was in united states of america where there is uh, only one single marriage law but in india if you do a christian marriage then you do get baptized so i suppose if uh, some uh, priest can do it without baptism if somebody can do it that perhaps would uh, be better for the satisfaction of the family in logical terms that seems to be the right thing to do apparently right now there is no provision for that so you talked about special marriage act i don't have much of an idea but i just wanted to understand that conversion doesn't happen just at the time of marriage there is also a societal pressure family pressure that happens later on so what happens in case of a special marriage act uh, if the family pressurizes the woman is there a is there a provision where she can go and um, report it because there are so many cases nowadays where people say that while they got married and yes because they wanted to get married at that point in time there was no tussle but later on even if the husband doesn't pressurize it's the family that starts to emotionally manipulate so yeah. uh, you see now uh, the position in law is that if you marry under special marriage act then uh, special marriage act uh, does not demand at that moment of marriage uh, conversion into islam or conversion into whatever religion this of your the partner may be following uh, and at a later stage anything can happen you see including a divorce anything can happen but even if you convert to islam if few years later your marital status for the purpose of divorce for the purpose of uh, your property rights vis-a-vis your husband's property etc your alimony rights and all that 
and the rights of your children they would be according to the special marriage act and not according to sharia law so that is one big thing and uh, that way women are better protected women are better protected all i can say but uh, yes after a few years of marriage uh, things can take whatever turn <laughs> they do see we are not talking of such small number of cases see mm-hmm. because most of the cases it happens right in the beginning do you think as a society the sanatan dharma the hindu society is more into the reactive phase so which means we don't while there are some organizations working now which is to counsel our young girls especially when they are in teenage early 20s to say that what will be the uh, you know probably some society you know information to educate them what may happen and the other part is of course the cure part of it once they have entered such a uh, such a uh, you know alliance and it breaks off now they are nowhere you know yeah, so you as a matter of fact uh the solution to the problem is that it is in class 7 uh, or 8 that boys and girls in school should be given a clear idea about the islamic law about the hindu law that is the hindu personal law and about the special marriage act and they should also be given a very clear picture about what prevails as far as the psychology of different religions is concerned now talking about that is not criticizing any other religion it is as a matter of fact informing people do you think that the whole arranged marriage was demonized uh, because if you look at because the arranged marriage has completely changed in today's context today it is not that you marry someone without seeing them people even go for a courtship of a year two years but still arranged marriage is still looked at as such a archaic tradition do you think this somewhere is demonized because people have nefarious ways because arranged marriage in a way prevents uh, someone marrying out of uh, you know this hindu fold no it's nothing to do with hindu fold arranged marriage is something which was practiced uh, all over the world till perhaps 1930s or 1940s it was practiced in europe as well and in america pretty much also so arranged marriage was a uh, was a worldwide phenomena and uh, different societies have changed some societies have changed slowly others have not changed at all the bulk of american uh, the bulk of muslim society has not changed but the bulk of hindu society in india has changed i mean uh, in the context of india why talk about hindu arranged marriage why don't you talk about muslim arranged marriage because that is still the norm 
in a religion where women cannot even meet the opposite sex, there will be only arranged marriage. So if you have to raise objections, if you have to talk about the freedom of the sexuality of women, I don't like using the word sexuality. <laughs> I can dispense with it. I can only say freedom to marry, freedom to fall in love. Then if you have to talk about it, then you have to talk first of all about Islam and Islamic society. Because that does not provide uh, the freedom of women to dress the way they want, to move around the way they want, or to talk of marrying the way they want. You see, unfortunately in India particularly, we uh, have uh, acquired a very uh, atrocious syndrome. And this syndrome is that we will not talk about so-called minority religions because uh, that is something which is considered to be almost uh, like uh, disfavoring them or not treating them with equality. Now, this is not at all logical. As a matter of fact, it has become a serious problem in Indian society. You have to talk about all sections of people, irrespective of their religion, irrespective of their heritage. Of course, we have to talk rationally. We have to talk about uh, history in, with good intentions, without any, uh, without any malice. But we have to be rational, open, and we have to talk about all sections of people. Yes. Uh, when you talked about war booty, women uh, appropriated or acquired as war booty who yes. are non-Islamic, and they yes. said that once they have been converted, then you test them if they are true believers or if they are just pretending or they are fake believers. And if they are fake, you... Uh, what if they are true believers? You don't return them to the infidels. What is the test? Is there any uh, prescribed how you can test them, or is it arbitrary to the choice of the man who has acquired? I suppose uh, it all depends upon the conqueror. <laughs> you know, whatever whatever goes uh, as privilege of the conqueror. So. Because these are very, uh, uh, these are situations that are not prevailing all the time. Uh, but unfortunately, in some parts of the world, in the context of uh, uh, some societies like the Yazidis, uh, they still prevail. There are parts of the world where uh, wars are going on exactly in the same manner as is mentioned uh, in the Islamic texts. Uh, and also maybe uh, this is not a question. We, the other day we had a talk about the uh, Maharanas of Mewar in yes. which the speaker said that at the time, at the, when the very first war, at the time of Raja Dahir, uh, when the conqueror, uh, he defeated Raja Dahir 
and Raja Dahir had two young daughters and his wife. They were taken as sex slaves. Now this thing was completely alien to the Indian psyche. They had never imagined such a concept existed. I would like you to remark, say something about that. Well, there is very little that I can say except that yes, it was not part of it because uh, in the Indian uh, social system, women were not taken. Nobody was taken slave. As a matter of fact, uh, the much maligned Manusmriti, you know, <laughs> we are so. Uh, fond of today punching the Manusmriti. The Manusmriti says in black and white that when a king conquers another king's territory, he shall enter the city and give Abhay. That is no fear to everybody except the Kshatriyas who still oppose him. So he shall only deal with, he shall only persecute, he shall only kill those fighting him with arms. He will not touch their women, their children, their families. Now, I am not a great scholar, but I have read a few texts from Indian tradition, uh, I have not found any text, uh, not just Ramayana and Mahabharata, but even much later texts, uh, which uh, show that a Hindu king brought back to his capital uh, several thousands or even a few hundred slaves, war booty, not even men, let alone women and children. So the Indian custom was that nobody was touched. The city was not plundered. The city was not burned. It was not torched. So all these things, they were experienced by Indians for the first time. These things were going on in the Mediterranean. They were going on uh, among the Greeks, you know, in 2500 BC, something like that, you find them in their holy, uh, in their ancient texts, you know, burning the city, making uh, slaves out of women and children. So you can read uh, the classical Greek text and you find accounts of that all. But this was not part of India. Indian culture did not practice this. Yes. There were slaves in India, but these were financial slaves, people who had sold themselves into slavery for financial reasons. Uh, Raghu asks, can we formulate a law where a person who is not dharmic, and uh, I suppose he means Hindu dharma, a person who is not dharmic and wants to get married to a dharmic, uh, and wants to get married, uh, dharmic has to compulsorily abandon his non-dharmic, that is Ab Abrahamic faith and enter the dharma. So probably he's asking for a similar rule for for uh, non-Hindu non marrying into the Hindu. That's the same question that you raised. So 
I'll just repeat this. A dharmic wants to get married to, and a, and a non-dharmic has to compulsorily abandon the Abrahamic faith and enter the dharma. Also, a provision where the progeny has to be brought up in dharma because love jihad is ultimately about demographic change. So he's asking, can we have such a law? Let me repeat the question to myself. Uh, I'm going to abandon the word dharmic. I'm going to make it very simple because. That's what the constitution talks about. Are you talking about making a law that if a Hindu marries a non-Hindu, then the non-Hindu should be compelled to become a Hindu? Are you saying that? I. Uh, that's what I understand from this. Well, and he he says yes. You're making a very non-Hindu demand. <laughs> I took pains to explain to you that. Uh, uh, Hinduism or the Hindu tradition does not ask such questions from the person you are marrying. It is a sacrament for certain social duties. But the philosophic faith, the darshan, the devata, the god, if you please, that you are going to worship, the sadhana that you are going to do, that cannot be subject to any compulsion. So please be a good Hindu and don't ask such questions. Question from Shruti Jain. She says, what does the law, beholds for, law behold for an atheist supposedly born in, an, in a Hindu family uh, entering into the inter-caste marriage contract and yeah. also how the Holy Quran sees it, if at all? Well, and indeed, you have asked a, uh, a very difficult question, almost a tickler, you know, something which, uh, well, you see, atheist is not recognized uh, in the Indian constitution as any category. So, uh, I, I mean, then there is agnostic. So a person who is an uh, atheist would only be known in terms of religion by the name that he or she bears. So if her name is uh, Sabina, then she would be a Muslim. If her name is Radha, then she would be considered a, uh, you know, a Hindu for the purpose of law. And uh, as for the rest, it is for the people to declare and to judge each other. It's more of a supposition or let's say tomorrow India brings an anti-conversion law and says that uh, if you marry a Hindu, you your children will be Hindu. If you marry, uh, and if we bring a thing like this, keeping aside the lobbying, keeping aside the whole, uh, you know, uh, uh, other things, what, what do you think will be the societal consequences? Look, anti-conversion law is a very different thing from laws related to marriage. Uh, and uh, I don't think that any section of Indian society, and I don't think that the bulk of Hindus, and let us remember and recognize, once for all, let us recognize that this is a Hindu majority nation. 80% of the people here 
Some may like to say 75% of the people here are Hindus. Hindus are not asking for anti-conversion laws. Hindus are only asking that people should not be bribed into changing their religion. There should be no undue pressure on them through financial means, through some kind of enticement to convert. As far as uh, discussion on religion, talking about religion, debating about religion, converting openly, that is something which Indian society is, uh, is not close to. And I don't think that anybody here is going to make uh, anti-conversion law point blank to say that one cannot change one's religion, that a Hindu cannot be converted. I don't think Hindu society is asking for that. Hindu society is only resisting proselytization. Let us be clear about the debate. The debate is that Christianity and Islam, they profess that it is part of their religious faith to convert others. And because they profess that it is part of their faith, Therefore, they are a threat to the majority Hindu population. So, it is not a threat given by the Hindus. It is a threat given by the Abrahamic faith because they consider it as the word of their prophet or the word of their son of God. Christ, they say, has commanded us to convert and therefore it is our right and it is part of our religious duty to do so. Now that has to be questioned. In all honesty, it is that, that you have to question it. And you need not be a Hindu to question that. In the 21st century, that is a question which anybody who believes in freedom, freedom of thought has the right to ask that how can you have a article of faith as part of your religion which enjoins you to convert others. The same applies to Muslims, Dawa. It is called Dawa there. So I think it is this that has to be questioned. And it is not a question uh, which can be forbidden by law. You don't need an injunction. You don't need a law. You don't need a parliamentary bill or an act for this. It's a question that you can ask, I can ask, which a good Muslim can ask about his own or her own religion, which a good Christian can a, a Christian believing in the freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, can also raise this question. He can ask this question from an orthodox uh, priest 
or any priest or any believer as to how can there be such an article of faith and such an interpretation. As a matter of fact, many people believe that Christ never said it and this was later on inserted into the Bible. I don't know about Quran, but at least about Christianity, there are many people who say that this was inserted much later. So even if it is there, even if the prophet said it, even if it is there as part of the tradition, it is time for us to give up such tradition. After all, we are asked to give up so many traditions and beliefs as Hindus. So why can't Christians and Muslims also do the same? What does the holy what do the holy scriptures hold for the same sex marriage? And she means both Hindu and Islamic scriptures. You know, as I told you that uh, Hindu scriptures, uh, it's a, not a very appropriate term for Hindu scriptures because uh, Hindu uh, tradition has many kinds of texts and I don't know what kind of Hindu text can ever be called a scripture. Uh, regarding the Hindu tradition, I gave you the situation, the, the real ground reality that there is no compulsion uh, in matters of religion regarding marriage. I mean, it, it is all uh, an open situation as far as religion is concerned because uh, this is a tradition which does not proselytize. And so the question of increasing your territory does not arise. It's not a cultural practice. The practice is only in terms of Christianity and Islam, Abrahamic religions. So we can't enforce our culture on those trying to hijack our nation, but just be mute spectators and submit by providing them with our women. No, I'm not saying that at all. How do you come to that conclusion? I'm sorry, I don't understand that at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I have provided you the, or myself or the, or, or, or the country, if I presume to say so, with the solution that every interfaith marriage should be under, Arctic, under Special Marriage Act, which those who have intentions of converting, who have intentions of dawa or intentions of increasing the territory of Christendom would never agree to. Because marrying under Special Marriage Act, it simply negates the very idea, the very idea of conversion through marriage. So I am giving a very simple, clear solution. And I see no constitutional hurdle in this. There are some legal luminaries who have told me that this would be a constitutional hurdle. I see no constitutional hurdle. 
because i am only saying that please make it clear if you are marrying for love or if you are marrying for religion so the state can make this law the state can compel people that in case they are doing an interfaith marriage then they should prove that they are doing it not for converting not for promoting any particular religion but because they want to marry a person whom they love there is a question from jay prakash jain ji he says mera prashna hai kya yogi ji ye sab jante nahi ya jankar anjan bante hain nahi dekhiye uh, a particular uh, a particular uh, person will only take the decision that his advisors give him so yogi ji i guess was advised as he thought was best or uh, i mean Uh, i know i had this kind of a discussion with many people in the ruling party they all thought that uh, that uh, they cannot make it compulsory for people to marry under special marriage act in case it is a uh, interfaith marriage they all thought so now it is a it, it's a matter of uh, advice you see It's a matter of advice. अभी एक नागेश्वर राव जी के साथ टॉक करी थी ऑन फ्रिंग टेम्पल्स एक्चुअली ही इन्वाइटेड एंड वी रिकॉर्डेड द टॉक एट सेपरेट प्लेस वेरी इंटरेस्टिंगली द उत्तराखंड टेम्पल्स दैट हैव बीन टेकन ओवर बाय द गवर्नमेंट दिस इज अ बीजेपी गवर्नमेंट एंड सो द क्वेश्चन केम अप दैट हाउ कम दे डिड इट डू यू नो वॉट दिकॉज ही क्रिटिसाइज द मूव सो सपोजिटली द उत्तराखंड सी एम इन्वाइटेड हिम टू मीट हिम दैट वाई आर यू क्रिटिसाइजिंग दिस and so he asked him how did you move to take over temples and he yeah. said my I, my bureaucrats advised me right this is <laughs> this is exactly what happens in the government the chief minister a bjp a hinduvadi does not know because because the bureaucrats uh, they get appointed as temple administrators and the bureaucrats uh, unfortunately are products of colleges like st stephen's college where uh, you are taught hardly anything about indian culture i am a product of that college also <laughs> but uh, that's the situation we have to change that's the situation we have to change i hope the uttarakhand chief minister now makes amends and takes back that law and uh, uh, i would be very happy if our leader shri narendra modi ji uh, does a great act of handing over all temples all over india through a bill passed by the parliament in uh, by the parliament uh, where all the temples are handed back to the hindu community right from tirupati i hope uh, modi ji gives this gift to hindus they'll remember him for that as much they'll remember him for article 370 removal and various other things